When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. W-A-S-H-I-N-G T-O-N, baby, D-C W-A-S-H-I-N-G T-O-N, baby D-C Washington, D-C It's paradise to me It's not because it is the grand old seat Of precious freedom and democracy No, no, no It's not the greenery turning gold In fall, the scenery circling the mall it's just that's where my baby lives, that's all. Washington, D.C., it's the greatest place to be. It's not the cherries everywhere in bloom. It's not the way they put folks on the moon, no, no, no. It's not the spectacles and pageantry, the thousand things you've got to see. It's just that's where my baby waits for me. Everyone. W-A-S-H-I-N-G. T-O-N, baby. D-C. W-A-S-H-I-N-G. T-O-N, baby. D-C. Washington, D-C. It fits me to a T. It's not the people doing something real. Not the way the springtime makes you feel, no, no, no. It ain't no famous name on a golden plaque that makes me ride that railroad track. It's baby's kiss that keeps me coming back. It's my baby's kiss that keeps me coming back. Thanks, good night. <laughs> I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest live from Washington, D.C. edition. It's Wednesday, April 26th, 2017. On today's show, the voluptuous and bicepy franchise, Fast and the Furious, is back with its eighth installment and, weirder still, its inexplicable second appearance on this program. <laughs> Thanks to you, Julia Turner, we discuss, I think it's called The Fate of the Furious. I don't know. My, neither my brain nor, you know, Did I don't you know, just pronounce it bicepied? It was bicepy. It's oh, bicepi. 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 Okay, got it. And some movies are bicepier, and this was bicepiest. All right. Uh, and then, from the beginning, Bob Dylan's singing voice was greeted with a degree of skepticism, and then inevitably pushed back on the skepticism. Now he's a Nobel laureate. And though the muse may still speak to him, is the larynx totally shot? Or is he, as Slate's music critic Carl Wilson argues, a great singer? Anyhow, we will take virtually any excuse to talk about Bob Dylan, but we will take absolutely any excuse to talk Bob Dylan with tonight's special guest, John Dickerson. Got to give it up for for the dick. All right, and finally, we, plus John, plus Slate's very own Jamel Bowie... It's true, a personal pundit hero of mine... Um, we ask one another, what is your favorite Washington, D.C. movie and why? Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And, of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hi, Steve. Hey, hey Dana. 
All right, digging in like some viruses, the Fast and the Furious franchise only gains more vital powers the more you fight it. So for the record, I loved it. Citizen Kane, best movie of all time. Vin Diesel returns as Dominic Toretto in The Fate of the Furious, which is racing to 600 million global box office. The latest is, uh, installment is promisingly directed by F. Gary Gray, he of Straight Outta Compton. And this one had even more special promise thanks to a screenplay by Aeschylus. <laughs> That is, I knew that was going to bomb, but I fucking love that joke anyway, and it would have killed in New York or Chicago, so fuck. Ooh. <laughs> oh, that was why the joke Turning died, Turning the room right? sour right up top. Nick oh, man. Well, we if, got... you, if only you'd pronounced... Wait, say it again. Ashless. Oh, God. We're getting wait, some wait, conflicting wait, 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 reports wait. from the crowd. Ashless? Yeah. That's not how it's freaking pronounced. <laughs> Let's get an ancient Greek in here. Come on. Is an ancient Greek in the house? I don't know. My <laughs> like God. an actual time traveler? <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. we can waste 10 minutes on this, but, but Aeschylus, in fact, did not write the screenplay, so maybe we should <laughs> All right, move on. moving on. All right, this iteration features Charlie's Tehran. <laughs> As a hacker mastermind cipher, uh, and also returning are The Rock, Jason Strathan? Statham. Statham. <laughs> Have some respect for the family. <laughs> for the art. All right, well, here's some respect in a cameo by Helen Mirren Schwing. Uh, she's fantastic in it. The movie has a plot, I'm told, suffice it to say, up the volume, up the ante, up the mayhem, and you up the BO. Let's listen to a clip. I mean, do you really believe you could beat me in a straight-up old-fashioned fistfight? Let me tell you something. Me and you, one-on-one, no one else around. I will beat your ass like a Cherokee drum. <laughs> Maybe one day we'll find out. Oh, you better hope that day never comes. <laughs> That's right, actually. Close the door open. Get back to your soul. It's just a malfunction. Get back. Just a malfunction. <laughs> My favorite thing about that clip is that it it posits that The Rock, who's been captured because Dominic Toretto, played by Vin Diesel, obviously has gone rogue, which is the plot of this movie, um, has been put into jail and just happens to have been put in the jail cell opposite his arch nemesis, Jason Statham. And the walls of the cell are glass. Because that's how prison works. So they can talk to each other. (laughs) It's just so great. All right. Uh, Dana, I'm going to start with you. You're the film critic. They, uh, the, I, I mean, there is something miraculous about this franchise, right? I mean, it, it's beyond unkillability because it does seem to be gaining momentum. I mean, this thing has done huge business. Like, no, it had the biggest global opening yeah. of any movie ever bigger than Star Wars. Yeah. No, it's it's unreal. But I will point out that that was skewed toward overseas and that its domestic performance while strong was somewhat disappointing compared to its overseas performance and i think that's worth noting because it's very obvious when you see this movie that it's a global product produced for the whole I world i totally agree it's global product it's a 240 million domestic though i mean it is it has a kind of bizarre gathering momentum for the eighth installment in the series i'd like to try to think about that but first they, they keep upping the ante and somehow they find ways to make it more infantile and absurd but what i noticed was more lore-heavy and pious. I mean, it's this odd balance of the mayhem and the special effects get more crazy and implausible as this need to proclaim itself the story of this core made-up family um, only gets more um, sanctimonious. What did you make of this movie? Well, okay, I mean, for starters, yes, I was the person who wrote the email that said this movie is atrociously bad. Do we really have to talk about it? But I don't want that to be taken as a complete dismissal of the entire franchise. In fact, when we talked about F7, right, that was the one with the Paul Walker memorial and yes. the digital recreation of him and all that, right? The, that was the skyscrapers one. Right, the Dubai skyscraper yes. jumps, yes. That seemed to me like a, a perfectly fitting end to the franchise, right? I mean, it's a, it's a goodbye to this guy who's been paired with Vin Diesel throughout, and uh, it sort of seemed like it brought things to a, to a pleasing end. I saw why it all existed. And the fact that there's still going to be three more, not just this one, but there's already a projected release date for why F9 stop, and F10, right? I mean, right? 
it's 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 just it does feel like cash hoarding overkill to me at this point. The, the scene that we happen to show is one of the more charming ones because I think Statham and, and The Rock are the two best things in the movie. Really, the most fun is had when they're on screen. But some really basic elements of the franchise seem to be getting lost more and more as the scope grows and grows. One of them is which is the fact that these people are supposed to be gearheads, right? I mean, there's supposed to be some scenes of kind of bonding over mechanic. Right, doing mechanics on old cars and stripping them down, and there's very little time spent in garages in this movie, kind of bonding over, you know, car parts, <laughs> and that seems like a big part of the early series that's that now almost completely complaint. disappeared. <laughs> no, it's not. Not enough time in this movie is spent in the garage. <laughs> but that's what makes the family and this whole idea that these people are bonded together by their intense gearhead love of, of car parts. <laughs> kind of disappear now they've become almost like superheroes if they're not superheroes their cars are superheroes because they now obey no laws of physics whatsoever right. they it, do things like there's right. a scene where they appear to be these are self-driven cars but I think there are some in this fleet that aren't self-driven either I don't remember there's so many jumping cars but there's a scene where cars are leaping on top of each other like animals almost as if they have their own will I, it, I, I just feel we've left so far any rules of gravity or physics that the stunts become far less interesting and impressive. Right, so I agree that's, with that. That's one complaint. So, Julia, the, this ball has got to end up in your court sooner rather than later. You're the one who liked this movie, so I'm going to force you to defend it. But first, you're going to have to do it in the context of, uh, of uh, Vin Diesel's quote. Best part of Fast and Furious is not the big explosion, Julia. It's, it's, it's the heart. <laughs> right? As with many things, I don't think Vin Diesel is wrong. But... <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I just think it's worth stepping back to appreciate what this franchise has achieved. Like, I don't think bigger than Star Wars is an accident. And we're living in a moment where it's easy to complain that everything is derivative of something else or is an adaptation of something else. And this set of movies has kind of organically created its own world and its own mythos. And I think that it actually has a pretty consistent and not too self-serious tone. Like, yes, there's a lot of lore. Yes, Dominic Toretto says the word family 47 times <laughs> yeah. and goes rogue on account of uh, surprising family connections that cause him to betray his original family, and th then they work it all out. Um, but, like, I actually think the tonal control in these movies is pretty impressive. Like, it's it, they know what they're supposed to deliver, which is like kind of knowing wisecracks, uh, a bit of a wink about the ludicrousness of it all, but not, and not actually just ludicrous himself who's in it, but like the <laughs> ludicrousness of the, of the actual stunts. And then the stunts are really fucking fun. Like, I mean, probably how many of you saw the trailer? Cheer if you saw the trailer. Yeah. Yeah. How, many people see, how many people here saw the movie? <laughs> two two people one of them very enthusiastic all right but they they, they how many of you are going to see it after julia's defense of it <laughs> suck up you're you're welcome dominic um i like it the the skill that it takes to up the ante and to have all the set pieces actually kind of build their little family characters and have the whole thing come off. I think they do it pretty impressively. And I think this movie does it pretty impressively. Though in the last movie, they literally jumped a car between two skyscrapers. And in this movie, I think they topped it by having a Lamborghini race a submarine. Now, as our, <laughs> as our culture blogger pointed out on Slate, the fastest that that submarine goes is 15 miles per hour. <laughs> so the whole final scene where all of their race cars are desperately struggling to get away from the ice-breaking submarine top is itself implausible. But uh, it's just a good night at the movies. I will also say that Google told me erroneously before I saw it that the movie was two hours and 40 minutes long, which seemed like a bit much even to me. So when it ended after two hours, I was also just so relieved that that may have affected my review. <laughs> The the gratitude for when the beating stops. I love it. No, but, uh, but it, is, it is 140 minutes long almost. And I will tell you, not going in with a false idea of how long it was, I thought it felt like an eternity. I had been sitting in that movie since before but, time began. But don't you guys agree, like, the tonal the tonal control in the movie and the way that it breaks for jokes, like, it's, it's much more successful than uh, these other ones. And, and, like, even I saw the Transformers right. trailer before it, which seems right. to have evolved into, like, an actual... There seems to be, like, King Arthur merged with the Transformers. Like, I don't <laughs> I know what happened too. in that franchise. But, like, this this one has, like, the courage... Like, it... it 
Wait. It has an identity and it knows what it is. This one has the what? What word? Did you say courage? I walked that back. It is the courage to make $900 million blowing shit up. Courage is the wrong word. I think there's real skill in how they execute their tone and voice. Okay, so let's move on. So as a work of Hollywood blockbuster craft, it's impeccable, right? As a formula for driving magnificently cash-stuffed trucks back up to your bank account, it's a total success, right? What I'm interested in is what, I mean, I sit there both titillated and alienated, right? I both loved it and hated it. I didn't know that it was directed by the same person who did Straight Outta Compton, was not shocked to discover that a interesting and thoughtful director had made it. Right from the first scene, I thought it was totally grabby. The scene in Cuba is just a, a, a magnificent set piece. Uh, and um, it it's kind of- It's sexist as all get out, but we'll let that lie. Well, we can get to that, but it, it's it in terms of you know executing a car chase and a and a thrilling opening, uh, and actually the way it kind of uh, kind of honors Cuban cultural identity. I mean, there is the moment where Vin Diesel <laughs> says to a random Technicolor Cuban, "Like, stay true to your culture." Or something it's so yeah, awful, awesome, but right? he says, "Keep that Cuban spirit." <laughs> We do have Vin Diesel impressions. I love that you do have a better Vin Diesel than I do. (laughs) Impression than I do. Cuban culture as seen by this movie is essentially a whole bunch of girls with hot bods wearing super short shorts, waving flags while cars race. Plus, There don't seem to be any old people or fat people. in-garage mechanics scenes were in the Cuba segment, (laughs) but apparently you missed those. But very quickly, uh, then it had to be a movie. That was the problem, right? Like the pre-credit sequence was was magnificent and then you have to create an actual sort of plot uh they do an okay job with that that's fine what did i'm table for a second but think about her as the villain i thought that was interesting but i don't understand this balance that works right because billions of people are seeing it and enjoying it between the mayhem and frankly violence right which is insensitive to a pretty high degree with with like the baby plot Right, the family plot. But it doesn't spoil anything, but there is a baby in the movie, and Jason Statham uh, has the baby during a gunfight, and I was like, I've never seen this in a movie before. Like, <laughs> to the degree that moronic producers put in the margin notes up the stakes, like, I know. We won't have him in the Bjorn, right? We won't have him in, like, a bulletproof Bjorn. We're going to have him in the open and the silencer, and um, I thought that was pretty intense. But... Um, but I, I just don't understand the balance between enormous amounts of lore and piety about this family they've created and the insensitivity and the violence that seems to drive the action of it. Any thoughts? Nah. All right, tell me what you think of her as a... <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, to me, it seems like the two things go hand in hand. It's extremely sentimental. Family, family, family. Right. The tiny baby. We must save the baby at all costs. Jason Statham, let's remember, was the evil, cold-blooded, murdering villain in the last movie. And for reasons that are not at all clear, he's now started to fight on the side of the Fast and the Furious dudes. There's that one scene where they explain his military history. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, but listen... Yeah, he's protecting the baby at all costs. To me, that just that seems like a very clear... Flip side, like we, we we can blow shit up because we care about this baby that we're going to get off the plane. I think that, you that you've put your finger on it. I think that that's it. Well, I'll admit it. I kind of loved it and laughed my ass off throughout. Um, it's called The Fate of the Furious. Uh, and uh, come to <laughs> facebook.com slash cultural fest and tell, you, tell us what you thought about it and address all Star Wars related comments to Julia. <laughs> Bob Dylan has sold millions of records, won the Pulitzer Prize and the Nobel, and is generally thought uh, to have completely revolutionized popular music. But is he any good? (laughs) Not as a songwriter or rock star, but as a singer. Carl Wilson, Slate's music critic, believes he's not only a good, but a great singer, and is still one. As he writes... So within the limits of Dylan's physiognomy, uh, which have certainly become harsher, those limits have become harsher with age and reckless living, so the smoking has shredded the voice, etc., it only makes sense to think that at any given moment, Dylan is sounding the way he pleases. He is seldom out of time or out of tune, except in his most shambling live shows. If you don't like what he's doing, it's probably not because he's helpless to do otherwise, but because he's doing it to you. We have a super special uh, guest tonight, 
I really mean this, the nicest man in show business, and he's a full SFOP, special friend of the program. John Dickerson is host of Face the Nation. He's chief political correspondent for CBS News. John Dickerson. John, I think of you as the thinking man's blind lover of Bob Dylan. <laughs> so take that any way you will. Right. I want to, <laughs> up front, I want to stipulate a couple of things, okay? In the rock era, um, this is what you ask of a singing voice. You don't ask what was asked of one prior to, let's say, 1960 or so, whenever it was. You ask, is it distinctive? Is it expressive? Uh, and is it, I, I, most of the time you also ask, is it impossible to disunite it from the material that probably has been written by the artist? On all three of those, it's an obvious and resounding yes. Maybe maybe the most resounding yes you could possibly give for, for anyone. So let's take off the table a completely primitive argument about like in 1962, could he really sing a song? And on and on and on. To me, this is really about the arc of his career uh, uh, and his development as an artist. Is the way he sings now appropriate to the artist that he's become as a songwriter? And is that a development we should be grateful for? Therefore, he is, by my definition, a great singer. So it depends if you mean the way he sings now when he uh, sings his old material or the, what he's been doing with the last three albums, which is to sing standards, which seems like, to me, if you're talking about the choices he makes in these last three albums or the way he sings his old songs, I think those are two distinct mm-hmm. things. Because right. he sings his old songs in these very, very different ways now. I don't know quite what to make of this recent period. I think they're fine. I like it, but I um, I like the combination of the lyrics he's written and the way he mm-hmm. chooses to take uh, yeah. those lyrics that he's uh, written uh, somewhere with his with that voice. So yeah. I'm I like it, but not as much as the other stuff. I should have said this up top, but the occasion for the segment is he's come out with yet more standards, <coughs> right. a triplicate, a three album. Uh, ben, can we cue up uh, a sample from Triplicate to give people a, a taste of how Bob Dylan is singing these Sinatra style? I hear her now promises she'll never keep and soon it's over I'm done with that's kind of great right i mean how can you contest, really right you can say what you want to about the tonality of his voice or the top of his range or something like that but that's a beautiful interpretation of that piece of lyric does that what is, i want to get the te- <laughs> yeah. i want to get the temperature of the room before i say what i'm going to say next in agreement with dana and julia <laughs> hmm. all right you had your say and uh not in agreement with dana and julia. <laughs> okay well so I would have said this either way, but um, Bob Dylan is one of the great, great artists of the 20th century, right? I mean, stipulated. Um, my issue with Dylan is that everything he does is treated as sly or volitional, and some of it's got to be just improv and bullshit. You know, if he if he does a Victor- if he does a Victoria's Secret ad, you know, people will say, "Well, that's Dylan telling you that you made this fundamental error." thinking that he was separable from a commodity culture and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, the guy's a money hound, right? He did it for the cash. And, but, but no normal human motivations are ever ascribed to Bob Dylan. And what I don't understand about Triplicate, it's, it's a nostalgia album. Uh, it's, an old, it's like a standards album. And when Rod Stewart does it, we're like, he's a, he's a weezer and he's done. And he's just squeezing a little more from the, you know, from his public, and when Bob Dylan does it, all of a sudden we're in eight layers of Kierkegaardian, you know, like... Yeah, I think that's... The fundamental thing that must be affirmed is your first point, which is that there's nothing more tedious than um, people who will analyze a Bob Dylan telephone recording message and, (laughs) um, and like, shove it like a turducken with all kinds of... uh, 
Meaning, um, but I do, I, so, and also because later he has said that certain albums, like, I think, was it Bob Dylan from 1972, which is just, this is standards that were basically, I think he had one more album on his Columbia recording record uh, contract, and he had to just get it out. And so he, ha- and he has talked about periods of, of his career where he was just trying to produce material. Um, and um, now also some of that is him being uh, kind of... Um, trying to write off some of his less good material. Um, I think this is more th- more uh, thoughtful. He's been on this strange journey, even the radio, the Bob Dylan old-time radio hour that he used to do. He's been on this kind of um, uh, making this argument that basically uh, this old music has to be revived and brought forward, and there's something true and real about it that people miss and don't know in the current music. I think this is a part of... I think this is part of a larger... Argument he's making. It's this part is of all what very Chronicles separate is from, all about, right? The, his book, the first volume of his memoir, Chronicles, isn't that what it's called? Is all about that essentially. I mean, I think it's as much about the old American <coughs> songbook and the history of American folk song and spirituals and gospel as it is about his own life, right? I th- and and he's also done. He did two other. So these are standards, but then he did the two um, uh, albums of sort of more old timey uh, folk songs, which were also felt like a part of this pattern, like trying to raise up these mm-hmm. things that it sunk right. to the bottom, you know, as lost treasure. Right. I think your word expressiveness, Steve, is the right one. And it and it is hard to separate out all of the years in, of meaning and the different Dylans. But I, th- one thing it, that word makes me think of is this one time in my life as a magazine editor, mostly at Slate, when I edited a uh, fashion photographers photo portfolio of people backstage at fashion week. And there was one model in it who just looked in all of the photos really like she was smart and thinking about something interesting. Like somehow her face in repose conjured the idea that there was like a world of thought underneath and it made all of the photographs of her really interesting. And the other model's not. And the photographer is very articulate about this quality in people's faces. And it I just made me look at photographs differently ever after. And I feel like there's just something in Dylan's voice where you hear so much thinking behind every sentiment. Like you hear the 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 presumed thoughts and mysteries, and it makes every line land with greater depth. And that's why I think the literature thing seems weird because it's not really all there in the prose. It's it mm. is in the delivery and it is in the singing and the way he kind of conjures that presumed thinking and experience and feeling underneath the surface of what the words are and what the notes are. And I don't know. I mean, yeah, that wasn't the most purely meadowlarky and beautiful version of that song I could ever hear, but it made me feel something. Yeah. Just to pull back from, from a second from that. I mean, I think it asks the larger question, what is it to be a good singer? What is it to have a great voice? I think we would all agree that it's not just simply having, you know, hitting all the right pitches and having mellifluous tone and so forth. I mean, you can think about about someone like Judy Garland, who was an amazing technical singer and had incredible range and could hit all the right pitches. But what made her a great singer was not that. What made her a great singer was that she so manifestly loved and needed to sing and perform and that she could get across the meaning of a song with incredible clarity and that she could communicate with audiences when she sang. It's a very different way than Dylan communicates with audiences because he's so gnomic and enigmatic and enclosed. But I think there's a similar sense, and that's why going back to these old songs and him kind of you know uh, exhuming the American Songbook in this way seems so moving to me. Mm. Even though I don't know this triplicate, I love that Shadows in the Night album that's called the Sinatra album because he's a great singer in that sense. You know, he seems very right. his his fealty to the song and to kind of giving the song what its dessert. It's just desserts seems so manifest in his singing. Right, but I, I think it's possible to I think it's possible to hold him to the standard of early Dylan, right? Like the Royal Albert Hall set where he does visions of Johanna and it's the voice of God and Satan and the earth and the cosmos. I mean, it's just like a remarkable vocal performance. He's just not capable of that anymore. That period, he creates a new kind of voice. Yeah, that completely. that bring it all back home, Highway sixty one, blonde on blonde voice is new. That's so it's new lyrics, new voice, crazy Absolutely. creation. He started out though as a total imitator of Woody Guthrie, that sure. kind of uh, farm boy sound. But he's now. <laughs> Ending as an imitator. I mean, he's not an imitator, right? He's trying to sing it, but he is imitating in That's a similar way yeah, in which he started his around. career. 
Yeah. Uh, so somebody could take that and get at least 800 words out of it. Um, <laughs> well, we've gotten 16,000 uh, here, but uh, I definitely think that Bob Dylan is the most overthought phenomenon in the history of popular culture. I thought that until I prepped last week's girls segment. And, so, <laughs> and secondly, uh, I do not think we will know who Bob Dylan is really in his essence until the last baby boomer dies. I really don't. It's so bound up in a moment yeah. that if you weren't of a certain age then, you just can't understand why these Swedish Nobel guys would say, oh my God, of course he has to win it. Like if you were 18 or 16 or 22 in 1960 or 62, you felt as though, I mean, Bob Dylan himself used the metaphor of a prison. We were breaking out of p- yeah. prison, right? You grew up in what you believed to have been a kind of suburban hell or prison. And this voice cuts into it and says there's a whole other way of being. And I I can legitimate that. I just think that the lack of perspective from that generation and the, you know, the editors who run magazines who are of that generation and assign pieces, you know, for the New York Times and the New Yorker just have no perspective and and won't. It's going to... You know, yeah. And that's the prison he keeps trying to break out of constantly, constantly, sure. constantly. It's what's propelled his career is being is constantly trying to spring himself from the various prisons that he's put into yeah. or the ones he put himself into. Um, but I think what's fascinating about him and I don't you're right. I mean, for somebody like me who came to understand music mostly through him and Elvis Costello and a few others. If, if it's the person who taught you how to understand music and lyrics and what you thought about the world. You're, lo- you're lost, right? You have this identification with him that that's beyond reason. But there are successive generations, including now my 14-year-old son, who is finding him without, I swear, anything I did, um, and, and coming to him completely outside of that historical context. And so that's the thing that fascinates me, is what then is able to live on through now several generations. Totally agree. We have two seconds left. Your favorite song of Bob Dylan's to play on a guitar and sing? Well, that's, uh, the favorite. my favorite song is Abandoned Love, I think, um, which was supposed to be on Desire, and they put on Joey instead of Abandoned Love, which oh if any of you know about Desire. But, uh, but I think the, to play is Don't Think Twice because it's easy. Okay, well, <laughs> let's... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Please. Yeah, but, I don't, I don't yes. pick. What other excuses can I make? <laughs> Wonder why, babe? Even you don't know by now. There ain't no use to sit and wonder why, babe. It don't matter anyhow. When your rooster crows at the break of dawn, you just look out the window and I'll be gone. You're the reason I'm traveling on. You're the reason I'm traveling on. Don't think twice, it's all right. That's worse than the you didn't study for the test nightmare. Yeah, that was <laughs> fucking low, Metcalf. A beautiful amazing. result. Yeah, I knew it. I know, I know what's inside that <laughs> kind of inscrutably <laughs> bland exterior. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You're a big star on TV. What do you give a shit what some podcaster says about you? <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's move on. The new Dylan album is triplicate. Uh, air your opinions about it at Facebook.com/slash/CultureFest, uh, and um, and uh, prepare yourself to rip apart with Maynatic Frenzy, the uh, uh, the singer um, John Dickerson. I mean, actually, physically rip him apart. Don't don't, don't run down his singing like tear him limb from limb in a Maynatic Frenzy out of these schools. Jamel Bowie is Slate's chief political correspondent and an analyst for CBS News and uh, on his way to being a full SFOP, a special friend of this program. He's sort of between FOP and SFOP right now. Uh, I'm 
I have bottomless admiration for Jamel Bowie and his work. Uh, he will now join us up on stage to discuss our favorite political or Washington, D.C.-centric movie. Jamel, come on out. The problem with having these two guys on stage is they just make us look like such schlubs. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, Jamel, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Um, uh, Julia, help me out here. So the essence of this segment is that each one of us chose our favorite Washington, D.C. movie. Mine is The Exorcist, of course. <laughs> it's not The Exorcist. Um, I think what we're going to do is we're just going to bump down the line, and everyone's going to say what theirs is, and we're going to play a clip and, um, and describe why, and then maybe we'll extract some completely um, fallacious thesis from it. Jamel. Uh, what I have here is a Lincoln. I think first we'll look at a clip and then we'll... um, So, Lincoln. I admire your zeal, Mr. Stevens, and I have tried to profit from the example of it, but if I'd listened to you, I'd have declared every slave free the minute the first shell struck Fort Sumter. Then the border states would have gone over to the Confederacy, the war would have been lost, and the Union along with it. And instead of abolishing slavery, as we hope to do in two weeks, we'd be watching helpless as infants as it spread from the American South into South America. Oh, how you have longed to say that to me. You claim you trust them, but you know what the people are. You know that the inner compass that should direct the soul toward justice has ossified in white men and women, north and south, unto utter uselessness through tolerating the evil of slavery. White people cannot bear the thought of sharing this country's infinite abundance with Negroes. A compass I learned when I was surveying. It'll it'll point you true north from where you're standing. But it's got no advice about the swamps, deserts, and chasms that you'll encounter along the way. If in pursuit of your destination you plunge ahead heedless of obstacles and achieve nothing more than to sink in a swamp, what's the use of knowing true north? So talk a little bit about, uh, about why you made this selection. So a lot of movies about D.C., about Washington, about politics, I, I, I think tend to either get really saccharine about the process or very idealistic. What I like about Lincoln is that it's, First, it takes a figure who is basically a secular saint and brings him down to uh, personhood a bit. But it also very much relishes uh, this interplay between principle and pragmatism. Um, It has a soft spot for the grubbiness of politics. Um, The MVP of that movie is obviously James Spader. Um, who plays a vote getter and who has this great line uh, earlier in the film uh, where he says he talks about bribing congressmen if, he, if you if they if you couldn't bribe them they would never eat um, which is hilarious this particular scene I liked um, for and I chose for a variety of reasons but the the big one is just this core tension in that scene and, and in the movie between um, idealism and between knowing what the right thing is and actually getting there. It's emblematic of, I think, what politics uh, at their best can be. And again, I, I myself have a soft spot for the, the grubbiness and the uh, ceaseless ambition of politics. And so I like that Lincoln as a film doesn't shy away from that. It also seems to have that same fondness. Yeah, um, John, you've obviously read a ton more about Lincoln than I have, but my impression, having read what what little I have, is that somehow being in his presence was um, otherworldly. He was both extremely human, but a figure of otherworldly power. A lot of contemporary accounts of Lincoln don't, aren't just retrospective hagiography, uh, that, that there was something about a combination of his humanity, his humor, his moral power, uh, his ability to be formal and informal uh, rhetorically. Uh, talk a little bit, Jamel, about um, Daniel Day-Lewis's em- em embodiment of that. There aren't that many cinematic depictions of Lincoln. Um, there's obviously young Mr. Lincoln. Um, and I sort of see in, in Lewis's performance like like a touch of, of that performance. Um, but this Daniel Day Lewis Lincoln is humane and funny and, and generous and hard nosed and passionate and sort of captures 
what, uh, as you as you said, what contemporaries of Lincoln uh, thought about him and described him as. It's sort of um, a really virtuoso performance, and insofar that I think we'll ever get a, a sense of who Abraham Lincoln was, I think Daniel Day Lewis does a really great job. John, what did you what did you pick? I had picked advising consent. Um, so advising consent was a 1960 book by written by Alan Drury, who is to write for the New York Times. He wrote another uh, five parts in the series. This is the first one. He also wrote something called the Senate Senate Diary, Senate Journal. He covered. He knew what he was writing about. Um, even though I think some of this movie is a little bit over torque because it gets kind of overly complicated, but it's about a uh, um, Secretary of State that a Democratic president, essentially um, FDR. Uh, nominates to be Secretary of State. He is accused of being a communist uh, sympathizer, um, and the Democrats are split over uh, over whether to support the president's pick. And so what you're about to see is it's an establishing scene. At the beginning of the movie, there are five or six scenes where you kind of are introduced to all of the players. And here you're introduced to a, um, a South Carolina senator who's played by a British character actor, which is important when you see how he just fully embodies the senator. Uh, and then you see uh, the, the, uh, the nominee for the Secretary of State post, which is played by Henry Fonda, um, who offers a, a truth about Washington that is uh, still true today. This morning, Chief. Yes, sir, Mr. Majority Leader. Laced with hot bourbon and branch oil. I expect you can see the flames coming out of my ears. Can we have a little talk? If you mean about Mr. Robert A. Laughing well, would my opinion be a fruitless conversation? The president of the party and I would take it as a favor if you lay off. I honor the president. I love my party, and I admire you, Mr. Majority Leader, except when it crosses with my conviction. I believe Mr. Robert A. Leffenwell will lead us straight to perdition. Come on, Steve. We know what's eating you. Leffenwell made a liar out of you in a hearing five years ago. It's a long time to carry a grudge, Steve. Maybe for a young fellow like you. My table of time would happen just like yesterday. Today, gentlemen. Scares you, doesn't it? All that 40 years in the Senate. Dad, it's Senator Munson on the phone. What? The phone. Senator Munson. Tell him I've gone out. Why? Because Johnny will want me to do some things that might obligate me. I mean, why do you want me to lie? If you're in, you're in. If you're out, you're out. Son, this is a Washington, D.C. kind of lie. That's when the other person knows you're lying and also knows you know he knows. Follow? Nope. Senator Munson will understand. Okay, if you say so. So that's still true today. Um, the first character, Charles Lawton, uh, who's in the white suit there, is a South Carolina senator, Seeb Cooley, who has several more fabulous scenes in the film. Um, and uh, he's just fun to watch on his own. Um, but I like uh, this movie is it captures a very specific period of time in Washington. And the book itself was Washington coming to age. If you think of 1960, the Kennedys, the birth of television, the first glamour um, president, it this captures that period of time where Washington was growing after the Second World War. Uh, but it had not yet become this the stage that it would become with Kennedy. And this kind of comes along in 1962, along with that introduction of Washington as a, as a stage with performers, of course. And in this movie, you have that mixing. So you have some actual real senators in the movie. You have Washington socialites in the movie. There's a great scene uh uh, at the White House Correspondence Dinner, when it's just correspondence, it didn't grow into be the the celebrity fueled thing that it has now become uh, until the '80s. But the, all the correspondents rush up to the president and applaud him, like to be close to him, um, which uh, sort of captures what people think that dinner is like, anyway. Um, and so I just think this movie itself is entertaining because of Charles Lawton's performance. Mostly, it's not—it's a pretty good story, but it also captures this period in time in Washington when it is changing over to become a kind of glamorous place and is sort of totally part of the Kennedy years. 
Um, and that's also, I feel like, the Senate, that when people look back on the kind of Johnson's ability to work the Senate and the Senate as a place where it was the world's greatest deliberative body with all of these, all of the trades and the dirty politics, but also the kind of necessary grubbiness of politics that Jamel was talking about, that is all captured in that film in that era for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julia? Um, I chose a clip from Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which... I was considering, and then I was like, it's so obvious, and you know, may- maybe the story's too simple, but I actually hadn't watched it, I think, since I first watched it in like eighth or ninth grade. And I went back and watched it again, inspired in part actually by it, Five Came Back, which taught me a bunch about uh, Frank Capra's wartime experience. Um, and it is A, a great, great movie, B, um, topical. There is a lot in this movie about fake news. Uh, also, the filibuster has been in the news of late, and probably this movie has the greatest filibuster sequence. Like, when you think filibuster, you think Jimmy Stewart, probably, if you're me. Um, so I thought we could watch a, a clip that showcases both the filibuster and fake news elements of this film. It's just the blood and bone and sinew of this democracy that some great men handed down to the human race, that's all. But of course, if you've got to build a dam where that boy's camp ought to be to get some graft to pay off some political army or something, well, that's a different thing. Oh, no. If you think I'm going back there and tell those boys in my state and say, look, now, fellas, forget about it. Forget all this stuff I've been telling you about this land you live in is a lot of hooey. This isn't your country. It belongs to a lot of James Taylors. Oh, no, not me. And anybody here that thinks I'm going to do that, they got another thing coming. Brady's column too? Holy smokes. What's the matter, dude? Here, kid. This is murder. You've got to call him off. He's getting nowhere. What are you talking Not about? Not one word of what he's saying is being printed in that state. Oh, no, dude. Taylor has practically every paper in the state lined up, and he's feeding them doctored up junk. One man muzzling a whole state? And how? Freedom of the press. <laughs> I had completely forgotten the, the fake news plot line. Maybe, maybe it's diminishing to a glorious... Um, uh, legend of American cinema to to bring it low with that too common term. But my theory of political movies is that they can all they're all in some way about the struggle that that Jamal laid out so elegantly, which is either the hope to achieve some good or the hope that American democracy is actually a unique form of government in the history of man that can benefit its citizens or the system wins and the and the lone figure who started out at the beginning of the movie crumbles to dust before anything good can be achieved. And like each, almost every political movie I think has that question at its core and you can kind of divide them w- one and the other. Mm-hmm. And this one I remembered for its idealism and the, and the you know, he's literally a Boy Scout naive. Um, Jimmy Stewart's 29 in that performance and, and you can see everything that, that he was beloved for over time. But um, this movie is so cynical. Like the, the landscape through which his naive travels is so dark and, and um, studded with like ossified, encrusted, bitter souls who don't believe in anything. Um, and it's just, it's like a much better movie than I remembered. Do you remember what year it is? Uh, 39. It's 39. So it's it's prior to his experiences. It's right before the, he goes. War. His yeah. second right. to last movie before yeah. going to war. I mean, I have to admit, I've never seen the movie in part because I expected it to be a Capra esque, you know, Treacle Fest. Treacle Fest, right? But Capra. The thing is that Capra movies are not Treacle not, Fest, right. I, I, especially when you get after the war and you yes. and you right you right. start seeing It's a Wonderful Life, which if there's one movie we think of as a sentimental. Right, a, a yeah, it's make totally you cry misremembered kind of movie. Film. Yeah, yeah, it also takes place in a very dark and very densely thought through political world. Yeah, and this this movie, I mean, it's really about that question: Do you believe that government can achieve good, or will it just ruin the? You know, does it just bring out vanity and venality and the people who try and and come to nothing? And it's just much more sophisticated about all the forces operating against um, Jefferson Smith, the Boy Scout than I had recalled. Mm -hmm. Plus, it's a pretty good filibuster scene. Hmm. Uh, All right, Dana, you're up. 
so, so my film is All the President's Men from 1976, the Alan J. Pakula movie, uh, which again is maybe one of the more obvious, right? I mean, if you think of a movie about politics in Washington, that's one of the first one that jumps to mind, but for a reason. And we, we were sharing on, by, by email what our clips would be so we wouldn't overlap and one of us choose the same movie as someone else. And Julia's response when I said, I think I want to do All the President's Men was, that's not a politics movie, that's a journalism movie. Um, and then Steve countered her with Watergate, duh. <laughs> <laughs> I did not. I did not write the word "duh." It was implied. It was strongly constantly implied. implied. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Seems to me that it's 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 the perfect crux of those two streams meeting. But then when I started to watch the movie and try to select a scene, I started to think maybe Julia's right because it was scene after scene with you know Jason Robards as Ben Bradley in the Washington Post office, and there really is a lot about journalism and journalistic ethics and journalistic process. But of course, it's all in the service of uncovering this huge political scandal. So I picked a movie where I think those two things kind of come together. In a way, it's it's very un-Washingtonian. In, in a movie that's full of all these beautiful scenes of Washington itself and uh, and you know the Library of Congress and kind of scenic moments, I picked the parking garage scene where uh, where Bob Woodward first meets with Deep Throat, played by Hal Holbrook and Rob, Robert Redford, of course, as, as Woodward. And uh, in a way, the entire plot of the movie, the entire story that they're going after is condensed in this conversation. But so a couple of things to note about this conversation conversation um, is the the way that suspense is worked into it. It's just, it's so, so skillful. And you'll see there's a moment when uh, when there's an off, off-screen sound and, you know, both of them think that their conversation might be getting interrupted. And it's just, it's so beautifully handled, the, the suspense and the fact that you never see the source of that sound. Um, but the main reason that I chose this scene is that when I watched it, my jaw was dropping at how timely it felt in terms of the Trump era and how much the uh, the the process of going after this story was a kind of fantasy fulfillment for people who are waiting to see this administration brought low. And so there are moments that you just you want to stand up and cheer in this scene. Anyway, so let's run. Can you tell me what you know? You tell me what you know. Well, we're beginning to hear a lot about a lawyer creep named Gordon Liddy. Gordon Liddy was fired by Mitchell because he wouldn't talk to the FBI. You'll hear more. I was at a party once and uh, Liddy put his hand over a candle and he kept it there. He kept it right in the flame until his flesh was burned. Somebody said, what's the trick? And Liddy said, the trick is not minding. Forget the myths the media has created about the White House. The truth is, these are not very bright guys, and things got out of hand. Hunt's come in from the cold. Supposedly, he's got a lawyer with $25,000 in a brown paper bag. Follow the money. Follow the money, right? I mean, if anybody out there is a journalist, that's what you got to do. I don't know. That scene kind of speaks for itself. I don't know what to say about it precisely, except that I think one of the great strengths of all the president's men is the uh, the importance that it gives to the fourth estate and how it shows that, you know, when, when times are really bad and, and nobody in power is telling the truth, that... In a way, journalism and politics, journalism is a, a branch of government, right? And that, that, um, that it all, that uncovering the truth is where any hope of, you know, the kind of justice that y'all are talking about in your, your movie clips lies. Mm-hmm. All right. My movie is The Manchurian Candidate, uh, the 1962 release. Um, and uh, I have to admit, uh, it's possible that none of the movie takes place in Washington, D.C., or very little of it, but um, I still say it's a screamingly relevant uh, and appropriate choice. Um, why? Because I think it's first. Of, it's, it's it's the first, and I think still greatest paranoid thriller ever made. Uh, secondly, funnily enough, it's MacGuffin is totally irrelevant to us because brainwashing, which is sort of the central conceit of the movie, uh, this uh, a very rectitude-filled, annoying prig. Uh, leads his unit uh, on a on a mission that goes wrong. They're all captured and they're all massively brainwashed. And at the center of it is this one guy who's the Manchurian candidate. But we don't really believe in brain. The science of brainwashing has told us like the central conceit of the movie is totally irrelevant. 
everything out else about the movie is perfect and totally relevant uh, and it's a, it's a it's a masterpiece and it, it what it is to my mind is a movie about the post-war crack up and it's kind of even though it's made in the early 60s it's a petri dish of 50s anxieties about the cold war freud homosexuality post-traumatic stress integration McCarthyism, mccarthyism's relationship to tv um uh and all of them are kind of thrown together in this quite brutal and shocking way. I mean, I hadn't seen the movie in 20 years and my head snapped back at more than two. I mean, possibly three moments in the movie that I'd forgotten and was utterly shocked by. Uh, it's a it's it's a brutally effective thriller and original film and a satire uh, all at once. So here's a clip. Tell me, Raymond, have you ever killed anyone? No, ma'am. Not even in combat? In combat? Yes, ma'am, I think so. Of course you have, Raymond. Raymond has been a crack shot since childhood. Marvelous outlet for his aggressions. May I have the bayonet, please? Not with the knife, with the hands. With the hands? Here, have him use this. Ah, da, da. Raymond, whom do you dislike the least in your group here today? The least? That's right. Well, I guess Captain Markham, ma'am. You notice how he is always drawn to authority? Uh, that won't do, Raymond. We need the captain to get you your medal. Who else? Well, I guess Ed Mavoli, ma'am. Ah, that's better. Now then, Raymond, take this scarf and strangle Ed Mavoli uh, to death. Utterly sinister, right? But the technique of the scene, which goes on quite a long time and is beautifully executed is you're moving in and out of their brainwashed interior in which they're at some horticulturist society meeting presided over by a matronly figure and uh, and what's actually happening which is a bunch of you know communist uh, uh, apparatchiks are, are, are brainwashing them and seeing whether or not they will be kill on command uh, I mean there's just so many unbelievably weird and remarkable moments in the movie. There's an African-American member of the company that's also captured and brainwashed, and when he relives in his dreams this same scene, all the women are, are, are black, right? And so it's just like all of these moments where it's taking Cold War neuroses and attacking it at its most hard, weird, and bullish-like center and trying to bring it to the surface. And it's just a tech, it's a technical masterpiece. As a thriller, you're on the edge of your seat till the final shot of it. It exhibits some of the, you know, uh, primitive non-feminist ideals of its time, but it's really, it's really about like troubled American masculinity during the Cold War years where you're meant to be martial, but you're not going to actually fight. It's really, it, and Sinatra is the hero. And so not, it's the, it, I think it's his best film performance by far. He's not playing a rat pack, you know, hipster that you're just glad to hang out with. It's actually an actorly performance. All right. Well, um, come to facebook.com slash culturefest. Tell us what your favorite Washington, D.C. movie is. So sur surely there are some glaring omissions here. Uh, but let us know. <laughs> Guys, will you please stick around and endorse with us? Sure. sure. Superb. Uh, Jamel, can we start with you? Of course. Excellent. Uh, my endorsement is not is is uh, not a movie or anything. It is a comic <laughs> book, um, and it is the recently, relatively recently reboot of the Flintstones. Um, uh, which and this is it's going to sound crazy when I say this, but uh, if you want a uh, extremely well drawn, uh, profound. Um, existential look at modern society uh, through the lens of bedrock. Um, <laughs> you want to read this Flintstones comic? I I saw a panel somewhere, and I was like, "This is this is too." And the the exact panel um, was, uh, you know, in the Flintstones, the appliances are animals. And so it's a conversation between an armadillo and an elephant. The armadillo is a bowling ball. The elephant is a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> and the armadillo is explaining to the elephant, you know, that every day uh, Fred takes me out and he's so angry and he's throwing me at these pins and I don't know what to do to get him to stop. Is, is, this, is this what life is? Am I just going to be in this endless hellscape of being thrown at pins? 
And his closet mate, Elephant, uh, the vacuum cleaner, says, you know, the thing that I always remember when I get lonely in here is knowing that at the end of the day, you'll be back and I'll have my friend back. And that is what can give us meaning. And it's just like, this is a Flintstones comic book. <laughs> uh, and that's the kind of, that's, that's sort of what the book, each issue in the, in the trade paperback, which comprises of six issues, is sort of crafted around a different dilemma, a different aspect of modern society, and it's being investigated through your familiar Flintstone characters. Of, of course, they're kind of more photorealistic in their, in their depiction. Uh, but it's... I am really not exaggerating when I say I read a lot of comic books, and this might be one of the best comic books I've read in like the past five years. It's really incredible, and you should read it. Yeah, here, here. I I saw you post bits of it on Twitter, and they just floored me. You couldn't believe the art or the um, sentiment behind them. John, what do you have? Uh, mine is the um, uh, the radio histories that Edward R. Murrow did with Fred Friendly called "I Can Hear It Now," which I didn't know about until. Um, Till recently, but it's basically 30 years of audible history. And they, at the time, this was revolutionary, but was they collected all the audio from the great um, events, Lindbergh's flight, the Snopes trial, and then weaved it all together in a narrative. And it's just really well done. The use of sound, the writing, the um, sense of immediacy of the history. Um, you can get it, you know, now in digital form. You can, um, and it's just a, it's delightful to listen to, although there are actual LPs of how it was first um, uh, marketed. But um, anyway, so uh, it's, it's, it's a gorgeous, and, and also um, just funny to listen to those periods of history and a lot of the same themes that we hear today. Superb. Uh, Julia, what do you have? Uh, I would like to recommend a very short and excellent book. Uh, it's called The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson. And it's basically a memoirish essay about a period of her life when her partner was going through a gender transition um, and she was pregnant and meditates in super interesting ways on bodies and gender and life and love. And it's just really smart. And sometimes... Just a very smart, short essay is a great thing to read. I mean, it's not that, you know, it's not short for an essay. It's short for a book. But it's it's basically a short book-length essay. And it was a bracing uh, and thoughtful and excellent read. I recommend it. Fantastic. Dana, what do you have? So Travelanche is a blog uh, named after its creator, whose name is Trav SD. He's someone I've interviewed for my book before, the book I'm writing on Buster Keaton. And he's... I would call him a vaudeville historian. He himself denies that he's a historian and says he's just an amateur and a lover of that period. But it's it's a blog that he keeps about, about turn-of-the-century theatrical history. Some of it's about vaudeville. Some of it's about early silent cinema. He just knows tons and tons about that period and has a really witty and charming way of writing about it and, and great taste in picking his illustrations as well. Um, and he's also, Travis D is also a sort of modern-day vaudeville impresario who puts on shows in New York and variety-type shows and, you know, collects interesting people who have strange and interesting acts and, uh, and, and works in theater in that way. So just for an example of some of the recent entries on Travelanche, I just like to open it at random and read the last few things because it's always something interesting. Uh, the last one was on, was on Lena Basquette, who was a child star in silent movies, who later became the the bride of the movie mogul Sam Warner. So he tells her story. Uh, then he he has a great recent post on Senor Wences, who I'd never heard of, who's a great Spanish ventriloquist. Anybody know Senor Wences in here? <laughs> yeah? And uh, so he's a Spanish ventriloquist who came over to the U.S. in the 30s and became had a hugely long career. I think he lived to age over 100. And even in my own childhood was the kind of guy who might be on Johnny Carson doing ventriloquy acts and things like that. Ventriloquism, I guess you say. Uh, so those are just just two of the you know random oddball things that he's covered recently. But um, but I always love to see Travesty's eye on anything. So it's just a, a WordPress blog. Uh, we'll we'll put a link on our show page. But it's called Travelanche. Fantastic. All right. Well, um, uh, I think on I think on last week's show, I did what I do once a year right around this time of year, which is uh, endorse the Philip Larkin poem, The Trees, which is one of my favorite poems. Uh, it turns out Philip Larkin has a second poem about spring, which I didn't know about, and here it is. It's called Coming. 
On longer evenings, light, chill, and yellow bathes the serene foreheads of houses. A thrush sings, laurel surrounded in the deep bare garden, its fresh peeled voice astonishing the brickwork. It will be spring soon. It will be spring soon. And I, whose childhood is a forgotten boredom, feel like a child who comes on a scene of adult reconciling and can understand nothing but the unusual laughter and starts to be happy. I mean, I know, I know spring came six months ago in Washington, D.C., but up where I am, it's just starting. Jamel, John, Julia, Dana, thank you so much. Washington, D.C., thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Thank you. You'll find, You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at Culturefest at Slate.com. The producer of our podcast is uh, Benjamin Frisch. The, our intern is Daniel Schrader. The really fancy, muckety title guy is Steve Licktie. And then <laughs> even fancier and muckettier than that is Andy Bat. We'll, we'll do these in studio, won't we? <laughs> no, I, I'm liking this. This is working. Okay, oh, okay, even fancier and muckettier than that is, is Andy Bowers, who's emperor of Panoply. And you can find all these awesome shows, including ours. Uh, like and unlike-minded shows at panoply.fm. Uh, and this show was made possible thanks to the expertise and excellence of Kirsten Holtz and yes, Ephraim Shapiro here, here. and everybody here at the Hamilton. <laughs> and we're at Slate Cult Fest on Twitter, which we always say at the end, <laughs> even though it makes no sense. Yeah, for Dana, Julia, Jamel, and John Dickerson, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. Culture Gap Fest listeners, just chiming in after our delightfully fun and slightly shaggy Washington, D.C. show to tell you about something new coming to our feed. We're launching something called Culture Gap Fest Presents, where we're going to bring you interesting cultural tidbits. Uh, and we're kicking it off this Friday with a new monthly show from beloved Slate podcast contributor Chris Melanfi. The show will be called Hit Parade, and it will tell you about the legends and lore of hit songs past, uh, replete with fascinating singable clips and other juicy tidbits. So get psyched for that. It will drop in this feed on Friday.